podcast about how individuals and organizations manage change with a focus on technology's impact on humanity and the nature of cybersecurity risk. In this show, we explore lessons from public service in the past to inform the leadership and management challenges of our digital present. I'm Jonathan Ryber, Head of Cybersecurity Strategy at Lumio, Visiting Scholar at UC Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity, and your host. Hey, I'm DJ Skelton. Thanks for having me back on. And I am a retired Army officer, founder of Paradox Sports, and an all things outdoor enthusiast. And our co host. This week, DJ and I are joined by one of the world's leading scenario planners and cybersecurity strategists, Jesse Goldhammer, managing director of Deloitte's West Coast Cybersecurity and Risk Practice, scenario writer, and author of The Headless Republic Sacrificial Violence in Modern French Thought. Good morning, you guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for coming on board. We hope not to subject you to too much pain and suffering. Jesse designs innovative programs to secure governments and universities protecting their data, network systems, and people from a wide range of cyber threats and helping them to manage evolving cyber risks. So by way of introduction, I first met Jesse in 2012 when he was at Monitor 360 running analytic and scenario projects for businesses and government agencies. Remember that? I do remember that. Remember. It feels like it was a long time ago, but it was fun. It was. It was a <laughs> longer time ago than, than maybe we would want. But Jesse's trained as a political scientist at Berkeley. He's an expert in French political history and culture. He's advised companies and governments all over the world. Now, the day I met him, imagine this. So Jesse, he was sitting in his big windowed office in the federal building, uh, San Francisco, looking out over the bay. Actually, he was facing towards his computer, but behind him, you could, you, had, you could see the bay, thinking big thoughts. At the time, I was working 80 hours a week in the Pentagon, which was less than pleasant. Um, and he seemed really to have mastered the art of life and was making a difference, an impression he's continued to impart through our years out here. Everything about him said the word futurist. He was so cool. And he still is, right? I mean, I guess I did a pretty good job of creating like a like a kind of fantasy image that, mm -hmm. you know, led you to believe that I'm super cool, that my life is all together. And you know what, if that, if that's still working for you, that's great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was magnetic. I mean, it's part of the reason I came out to California was like looking out at the ocean and imagining another life, uh, which out here, which is great. And, you know, so before we dive into the future, and that's what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about how we think about the future, how we structure our thinking about the future, the nature of scenario planning, how organizations use it, uh, how individuals can use it. And before we dive into that, we, you know, in, in this show, every episode we talk about life in the outdoors. That's part of our work here at Beyond the Breach because we believe that taking time to exercise and focus the mind matters immensely for leadership and resilience for the self and the, for fostering that same in society. So in addition to being a futurist and strategic advisor, in 2017, Jesse hiked all of the John Muir Trail in Yosemite. I, I knew him back then and um, some of which he did with friends and some of which he did on his own. So we want to talk to him a little bit about that. Um, for me, the longest I've ever done solo was three days. That's not very long. So, and I got dehydrated and woke up at five in the morning uh, with a splitting head. <laughs> He's What's, very fragile. Yeah. He just, very, <laughs> yeah. Like a flower. Yeah. Like a flower. Yeah. A Venus flytrap. <laughs> what, what's the longest you've ever done solo? Like out in nature? Yeah. Oh, I mean, probably a month. Yeah. Okay. So the two of you guys like John Muir's in, in the in the making. So when Jesse when Jesse was out there, I think there were there were frozen rivers. I think it was in summer. Maybe they weren't frozen. He burned more calories doing the 19 or so miles a, a day than he could replace. And as a consequence, he came he literally came back looking like John Muir. I mean, he's he had a sallow face. He had this really thick beard. He was hella wise looking. He looks like he I could drop some serious wisdom. Hella hungry is what I was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, you know, so like being out in nature helps you focus your mind, helps on, your, on focus your mind on yourself, on your best practices, on your future work. So, so Jesse, what was it like? What were some of the lessons you drew from that time? Well, I mean, maybe the one thing to start with, which, you know, we can start drawing some connections to the world of cybersecurity as well is, 
you don't just like pick up a backpack, throw some stuff in it and then head on on a trail for 19 days. Like you, I, in my case, I spent like six months preparing both, you know, physically for that kind of experience because I forget there's something like six or seven passes all over 12,000 feet for the John Muir Trail. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of up and down. And if you're not physically prepared for it, you're just not going to make it. Um, the other thing, and you know, like it, it, this isn't digital technology necessarily, but there's a lot of technology that you take with you on these trips. I mean, you have your sleep systems, you have your shelter systems, you have your food systems, you have even your backpack. And the technologies for all of that stuff have changed so much in the last 10 mm -hmm. to 15 years that it becomes like, for me, super fun to kind of figure out what you need, but also a lot of reading and a lot of talking with folks to figure out what works under what conditions, like what makes sense to bring for a trip like that. What were some of the things you read in advance to get ready? I mean, there, so I got really sucked into the uh, ultra lightweight kind of community, folks who like literally like will drill holes in their toothbrushes to like reduce it by, you know, a quarter of an ounce. I didn't go quite that extreme, but you can read endlessly about, you know, like what trowel to use because, you know, there are aluminum trowels and there are plastic trowels and then there are DIY trowels. And so people will write, you know, tomes about tents, about sleeping systems, sleeping bags, whether you should, you know, have a tarp, whether you should even camp out or be in a tent. Um, people who create their own shoes because it reduces weight because, you know, in the final analysis, look, if you're going to be out for 19 days, the difference between carrying, say, 60 pounds and 30 pounds is significant. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. Yeah, I remember in Wild, when I read Wild, Cheryl Strait's book, she started out with like all this weight and she tried to pick it up and like she ultimately ended up shedding stuff. And in, um, in Bill Bryson's book, uh, Not the Long Walk. Or Bill Bryson's book, we're with Richard. Yeah, on the yeah. Appalachian Trail. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's, his, his walking partner has all these like Snickers bars and he just starts like shedding these things on the trail. Yeah. Most people bring way too much stuff and then they end up leaving it. And so there's a, it's also cool. There's like a whole barter system out there because people are constantly trading stuff or giving away stuff because they just brought too much. Yeah. So what was some, what was, what was some of your best days on the trail? I mean, the, the go, uh, going over passes or climbing peaks were definitely the most exhilarating because it's just so much work to get to the top. And then there's an incredible reward. But I actually found, you know, for me, like in some ways, like the calmest moments were, you know, I got into this rhythm where I would basically fall asleep the second the sun went down and then would wake up the second the sun rose. So it was like, you know, eight to 430 or something like that. And the calmest the calmest moment was kind of falling asleep at twilight because my body, I was just so physically exhausted and like everything was in its place. And, you know, it was just kind of cool to feel, especially when I was by myself, to be outdoors and feel so um, like I could just pick up in the morning and go any direction. I could go for like five miles or I could go for 15 miles and I would have what I needed and I was having a great time. And I should also add, it's incredibly hard. I mean, like there's doing that kind of mileage every single day for 19 days is kind of brutally hard, um, but super fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So as a scenarioist, mm. how did that play into your planning phase? Did you like, how many rabbit holes did you go down to? To like, okay, well maybe I'll get, maybe I'll encounter a bear, therefore I need to bring all this stuff or you know, maybe the weather will come in and I should be prepared for this. Like how many of those? And then how, what was your thought process of whittling that down to a realistic weight? Yeah, it's a great question. So I spent a lot of time and interestingly now spent a lot of time actually watching YouTube videos before I left because everyone now has a mobile phone and is taking pictures or videos of stuff along the trail and then uploading it. And so, you know, I debated things like crampons, or no crampons, ice mm. axe or no ice axe. And the weather was changing week to week during the summer. There was also 2017 was a really heavy snow year. So there was still skiing, I think, in Squaw, like in late June, early July. And so I literally until even the day I left, I left my crampons and ice axe in the car because I was like, you know what? I just don't think I need them. And with the exception of like there was one moment where I was traversing this kind of um the steep snow and the snow just, uh, it was pretty steep and it just uh, ended in a, in a half frozen lake. And I'm like walking across it with poles, which I did bring. And I, you know, DJ, I had this moment where I was like, 
I actually did not need crampons or ice axes, but I would have loved to have an ice axe right at that moment because had I slept, it just done. Like <laughs> I would have gone into the lake. I would have had my pack on. I would not have mm. gotten out of that lake. It was mm -hmm. too cold. There was no way to get out. Um, it would have been ugly. Yeah. You know, um, this probably hasn't happened to you, but when I first started hiking and going to the outdoors on solo trips, I would actually get obsessive and somewhat indecisive about each item. It was like, am I going to need this high-end ultraviolet filtration device? God, okay, if I'm going to bring this, I need to bring batteries. And then I would like sit there and you, like, you just had to sort of knock yourself free if, of your list at a certain point. It's like, okay, I've got, I've done everything I can. I've done as much training as I can. I don't know if that ever like happened to you guys in your decision cycles. You get that. You also, I mean, with like some systems you want to be redundant. So for like water systems, like you have maybe a filter system, but then you have pills as a backup just in case. But for other kinds of systems, I mean, like your sleeping bag, you know, if your sleeping bag gets so wet that you can't use it, um, you're going to have some pretty cold nights. You'll probably still survive, but it's going to be hard. Yeah. Um, you know, like if it rains for a week while you're out there and you can't dry out, that becomes really, really challenging. But, you know, you can, you know, I spend a lot of time kind of thinking through these different scenarios up front. And, you know, and then there's kind of, and we'll probably get to this in the world of cybersecurity too, then there's some, you know, risks associated with it. Like, what are the systems you want to be super resilient because the risk of it failing is... Uh, you know, it's it's either high or if it does fail, it really totally ruins your trip mm -hmm. versus systems where like, look, if you have to go hungry for a day or two, like you could probably survive that if mm -hmm. you needed to. And so, you know, you're constantly sort of weighing these different risks, different kinds of systems, different technologies and trying to f figure out, given what the future might hold, like how do you prepare for it? Yeah. Wow. Um, DJ, you had you have some thoughts you want to introduce. I don't know if now's the right time, but well, it's interesting. You know, I mean, I, I spent my whole life growing up in the outdoors, and I was blessed to to be raised in a family and and have friends that 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 was our hobby, right? Go out hiking and climbing and all this stuff. And then and then you hear all these buzzwords like like all oh, the work life balance, and you have to unplug. And what was the article you mentioned last time well, about the three, three day, day the three day effect and stuff like that? Article, yeah. Um, and so I started doing a little bit of of research and I recently was in a conference last week uh, called the Cognitive Performer Summit. It was the mm -hmm. second year they had it. And it was uh, a couple hundred of the world's leading ex experts in all things that make the elite athlete or elite team around cognitive performance and how do you maximize that. And so I've been reading up on these three things which are really fascinating in this context. And I don't know if you've heard of this stuff, but the attention restoration theory, which goes with the three-day effect, right? Like all these things, right? Like how many times do you accidentally glance down in a meeting at your phone, right? Or like John and I were, John and I were on a phone conference actually, you were texting me, right? Um, things like that, right? All these distractions, right? And so, that has a effect on our cognitive load. Mm, and, DJ and told me to focus. I texted him. He's <laughs> like, just focus, okay? <laughs> uh, the other thing, the other thing, and Berman, a bunch of great, great uh, psychologists and scientists that are that are uh, looking at this future of a world in which humans are cohabitating with robots and technologies yeah. and AI systems. Do we have to go back to everything we've learned about teams and working together and, and, and the, the stress and anxiety that that plays with us? And then nature is, a, is always brought up in all these dialogues, which is amazing. And so the biophilo effect, right? Uh, even if you can't get outside, just put it again, a picture of a tree in your room. And that actually has, mm -hmm. or a plant or a flower, right? That has a, an impact. Uh, that's interesting. It reminds me, one of, my, one of my favorite scenario planning terms is the phrases, I should say, is um, this concept of the official future. And it's the idea that every, every individual to some extent, but also more importantly, every organization has an idea of what the future is going to be like. And often that future is shaped by a whole bunch of, you know, data, feedback, uh, um, cognitive like experiences that you know are kind of implicit like you don't you don't you're not necessarily aware of all the assumptions that shape that official future but it's like almost the stories that you tell like when you're having lunch or on the water cooler so to speak you know just you know having meetings about you know near-term strat strategic planning and you're not actually identifying specifically what those assumptions are but all of the planning is oriented around this idea of what the what everyone sort of thinks the future is going to be, and in most cases, that future is wrong. And so, part of what's interesting about scenario planning is 
first of all, identifying the assumptions that shape that official future so that you can at least be aware of what you what it is, and then to identify alternative futures that really put pressure on or challenge that official future because that's where you start to see agility, uh, the capacity to adapt, and also resilience because you recognize like, oh, I could be totally wrong about a future in which like, AI is really helpful in which, yeah. you know, every system, you know, just kind of generally asks me what I want and then fulfills those needs and, it, you know, just works perfectly <laughs> and seamlessly. You know, like, I don't think any of us actually believe that's possible, but that is one future which mm. we're bombarded with every single day. Yeah. There's a there's another podcast that just spun out of Masters of Scale, and I shouldn't be ad overly advertising podcasts that <laughs> get at similar questions to ours, but I think it's going to be really good. Should, should this exist? And I think technologists... Um, Similarly, like it's like you check your assumptions. You're creating something. You say how how is this actually going to play out? And you know maybe you, for something that scales massively like Facebook, when they initially create it, they probably don't imagine yes, this is going to have three billion users. But you then have to ask yourself the other questions of how it could be exploited. What are the what are the potentials in which this could go sideways? Right. And um, I'm not going to force it back to DJ's initial point about like putting a picture of a of a tree on on your on your on your desk. But like there's an element of reframing that you have to do when you think about both yourself and the future for your organization where you're, you're consciously sort of reframing it. Um, so Je Jesse, I think that's probably a good, a good more like formal segue to move into your thinking about scenarios. And I, I think it'd be, it'd be good for the listener to hear like, cause you've been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. It'd be interesting to hear about how you first came across scenario thinking and then like how you've seen it work for your clients and how, how it's evolved for you over time. Sure. Um, and maybe let's kind of do a back and forth on a bunch of those just so, yeah. um, you know, we make it more of a dialogue. You know, scenario planning came up on my radar kind of in the uh, early 2000s, actually. I was working at Ink to Me, which was one of the early search engines. It was purchased by Yahoo and it kind of folded into Yahoo. And at the time when I was at Ink to Me, um, and then, and then, it, you know, at Yahoo, like there was a real competition between us and Google. Like we, you know, like we, it was, it was an actual competition as opposed to later on what it wasn't competition at all. And one of the things that we were all thinking about is like, you know, especially in those early days, like, first of all, no one knew how to do anything, right? Because there was no internet business, really. We were inventing it on the fly. And so, you know, all you had to do is be kind of a little bit smart and a little bit ambitious and you could do fun things in these companies, but th there was no structure to it yet. And so we were all thinking about what does the future of the internet look like and what implications will it have not only for business, but for, you know, even the human condition. And so that was, that was one of the ways in which I got, I got really interested in scenario planning. And then it turned out that, you know, sort of the most successful scenario planning firm, the one that sort of outlasted all the others was in the Bay Area. It was called Global Business Network. It was founded by um, some really remarkable guys who, uh, one of whom came out of Royal Dutch Shell, a guy named Peter Schwartz, who uh, is now at Salesforce. And then um, another one also remarkable was uh, Stuart Brand, who was the, you know, founder of yep. the Whole Earth Catalog and involved in the well and then uh, is now uh, deeply involved in his uh, Long Now Foundation. Yeah, of course. And these guys were just, you know, like they weren't classic consultants. And so, you know, there was something so interesting. They, they, they actually had kind of a social mission connected to the work that they wanted to do, thinking about the future. And part of it was introducing the world and the world of business in particular to this thing called the internet and to personal computers and to networks and to try to help them understand what that meant. And I was, you know, I was kind of riveted by this idea of like, well, yeah, like the future is really fundamentally uncertain. I should add like scenario planning is not about predicting the future, but it's about helping organizations plan for the future. Mm -hmm. And it was just so exciting to think about how do we do this for this emerging tech revolution, which was akin to like the Gutenberg press. Mm. That's so interesting. So uh, is, can you explain a little bit about like, like what would be like one of the top benefits for why a company, let's just say a startup, like we had a conversation briefly, uh, maybe the last podcast talked about, about uh, the lack of red teams yeah. that we've yeah, yeah. seen in this world, right? And to me, it, it's you know coming up in the military, it was just this inherent thing that I thought everybody did when they were planning actions in the future, right? You know, most, most probable, was the catastrophic and things like that. So what would be the benefits when you're looking at major constraints, whether they're financial or personnel, and you're trying to just survive, you know, and get to the point that uh, that you're stable, at what point 
in your evolution of of an organization and your growth? Do you do it from the beginning? Do you start looking at scenarios? Do you start looking at the future? Or do you wait until, I don't know, like, what's your advice on that? So, I mean, DJ, you're making a great point, which allows, I think, let's make a distinction. So on the one hand, I think there are a whole whole set of activities that you might call preparedness. And I mean, FEMA would be a good example of an organization that does that, as is the military. And it's kind of near-term preparation, like knowing, for example, there's going to be some number of you know, hurricanes, for example, in the next season, and we want to be prepared, like, where are we going to stage water? Like, how are we going to deal with people who have been dislocated? And then I'd say there's longer term planning, which is more like scenario planning, where it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an exercise of giving some structure to something that is fundamentally unstructured, which is the future, and then thinking about how you would address those different types of futures in some manageable way. So, you can't deal with 900 futures, but you can deal with four or you could deal with five. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways in which scenario planners work is like helping groups of people kind of um, get down to sort of an iconic set of futures that allow them to think about different ways in which they might plan. And I think that we want to make a distinction between like, how do we deal with something urgent that happens like in the next six to 12 months, which isn't really a scenario planning process. And then how do we think about you know, organization like Illumio or Deloitte or the Army and what those organizations need to prepare for, let's say, in the next three to five years. And that might include, like, what kind of people do they need to have or how do they train those people or what kinds of technologies do they do they need to procure and what would those technologies do? Or most importantly, maybe let's take the military example, what kind of combat are we planning for? Like, we're just, in, and I'll stop on this, like, We've just made this really interesting transition from a world in which our military intelligence communities were essentially planning for non-state actor combat. Mm -hmm. And now we're back to like the great state, you know, sort of interactions between, you know, countries in the world that we consider to be major threats and us. And that's a totally different orientation. And, you know, like every time the pendulum swings, we sort of get very prepared for one set of futures and much less prepared for another. Yeah, that's a good point. A couple of years ago, when I wrote this study on Asian cybersecurity futures, when we were both at Berkeley, um, I engaged with a number of Indian leaders, uh, which was a, came with lots of richness and some challenges. But the, for me, the richest point, which then led to the third scenario was, Let's, you know, the United States and, and its allies constantly think about China as an enemy, right, or a competitor, something that poses a potential threat. And he said, let's think about what would happen to China in a cybersecurity future, in a digital future, where it became the victim of its own internal behavior. And I thought that was compelling. And if, the, you know, I, I haven't been in the Pentagon in meetings in a long time, but I, I suppose one thing that I would say is like, we don't want to over-rotate too much in one direction, right? You have to continue to imagine scenarios in which case non-state actors or state actors start to acquire malware, which is something we've been worried about forever. And and we saw this with WannaCry uh, when, you know, the, the NSA's tools were leaked, right? It's like these are things that we know are going to happen. So, so Jesse, I think maybe it'd be useful to take a minute and then DJ and I can riff off, riff off of it. If you, if you imagined a couple of trend lines and things that you've been thinking about as a scenarioist, um, I wouldn't ask you to write one on the air, but if you have something in mind for, for the future, we can maybe talk about that. Yeah, I mean, so let's take kind of, let's call them even sort of narrative just for the sake of discussion. So one sure. narrative is, I mean, we live in this incredibly, from a cybersecurity perspective, is incredibly messy and complex. Like you've got nation states doing stuff, you've got, you know, criminal organizations doing stuff, you've got, you know, script kitties around the world like doing stuff. And so, you know, it's, there's this is immense sense of insecurity. I mean, I just read an article about, you know, like Nest, uh, for example, thermostats being hacked, you know, so as create, which allows like hackers to kind of surveil the, you know, families, for example, that have these thermostats. Mm. Um, So imagine a future in which that just continues to get worse, in which uh, there's fundamental insecurity because of the technologies we use. And we, you know, we know what's coming online. We've got Internet of Things coming online. We've got sensors coming online. We've got all kinds of stuff that um, you know that is is going to create a digital environment for us in which we are constantly interacting with different kinds of devices. If that continues to become insecure, like what is that? You know, like how do we prepare for that? Hmm. Um, 
you know, how, what does it mean to be resilient in that world? Mm-hmm. Um, versus let's say, and I'm, and I'm being a little bit stereotypical, but for the sake of making the point, you know, what if, you know, Silicon Valley or other AI experts, like what if they finally get it right? Like what if they're actually able to develop AI algorithms that actually create self-healing networks? What if we can actually identify the vulnerabilities in our systems before someone takes advantage of them? You know, what if the promise of technology, which is that, you know, it could be secure, it could make our lives better, it could enable us to communicate in ways or to interact in ways that we can't even imagine, you know, so AR, VR being an example of that. Like, what if we get that right? And what if um, yeah, that sense of insecurity actually disappears? AR, VR, how do you break that down? That's an acronym. Uh, augmented reality versus virtual reality, sort of the difference between like having a headset on and just seeing something that's purely digital versus like interacting with the world, but having kind of digital uh, enhanced components in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so those are, I, I'm just kind of painting this stereotypically for the sake of conversation, but that's a very different world. Like we would, if, if we thought that the next 20 years was going to be more and more insecurity, how would we prepare for that? Like what kinds of technologies would we want to create? Like how, what kind of resilient systems would we want to create versus one in which, what if we, you know, like we made a big bet and got it right, you know, the right AI systems and all of a sudden like security, what if security went away? Like we just weren't worried about it anymore. That'd be awesome. Yeah, right. We could all go back to being, we could just go outside. Or you think about it as insecurities and vulnerabilities are not necessarily negative. And they are here to, they are part of these systems. They're part of us as human beings. They're part of these processes systems themselves. And so how do you create teams and how do you create organizations in which you, it's not if, it the insecurity happens. Right. It's, it's going to be when. And I think mm-hmm. what we're seeing in the cyber world is that for the foreseeable future, it's that OODA loop, right? That, that mm-hmm. enemy's always going to figure out a vulnerability in the, in the system. Yeah. So, I mean, right. certainly that's, that's as I say in each episode, that's what's driving us at Lumio in terms of our product, but also the strategy behind this this podcast, which is to take a take a look and say, it's not a question of if, but when you're going to be breached. So you have to prepare for it um, ac- across multiple different ways. You have to invest in the right technologies. You have to get your teams ready. Um, and in advance of that, you have to have thought about the future such that you recognize the necessity of making the right investments, right? That's part of what security investments are. Um, and for us in the military and those of us who've advised the, the U.S. government, it's like kind of a natural process for us. This is where we come from. We come from a planning culture. But um, Jesse, if you if you were going to just I don't want to oversimplify your, your first narrative, but if, if you were to assume you know, more and more IoT devices are coming online, more and more human beings are interacting with technology, what would be some of the recommendations that you would make for um, for companies or society as a whole if that may be too big a too big an apple, but what were some thoughts? You it's a big apple, but you know, it looks you're asking the guy that doesn't have any social media profiles. Yeah, I mean, a sensible <laughs> human, right? Well, <laughs> you know, that's part of that's that's part of like how I manage my security, which is like not 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 putting a lot of information out there. I mean, that's mm-hmm. not to say you couldn't find information about me, but but it's definitely I'm very very conscious of that strategy. I mean, you know, like let's take something that probably we all are familiar with as well as our listeners, which is like security by design. Mm-hmm. Which is like, you know, if you're building and, and, you know, like the 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 companies that started maybe 15 years ago or even longer, like they didn't really worry about this very much. Like security by design wasn't even a, a, a concept back then. But now, like you would not consider or you sh- I, in my opinion, you shouldn't consider inventing or creating a new set of technologies or services without actually building security in from the very beginning, as opposed to very quickly developing something that is highly insecure and then trying to like reinforce it after the fact. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there's a kind of basic principle that I think is, you know, mm-hmm. has a lot of implications depending upon whether you're doing hardware, software, software service or whatever it might be. But that would be, you know, I think from a, from a, from the standpoint of thinking about the future, a really important principle that you mm-hmm. would want to adopt if you want to make sure that you're developing a system that is both secure and resilient. Have you seen recent success stories of security by design that you Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, actually, let me let me answer the question I wish I were asked, as opposed sure. to the question that you just yeah. asked. DJ me, does which, that to me all the time. Oh, it's, 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 right it's the way to roll. <laughs> so you know, uh, let's take a, a, a sort of a non-digital example. Um, back in the day, we did some work so for scenario planning work. We did some work for a global logistics company, and they were you may remember late '90s. There was a lot of worry about pandemics. Yeah, you probably know the story. Yeah. So a lot of worry about pandemics. And so this was a company that was 
also worried about pandemics because in, in the event of pandemics, like you might have global air traffic just stop. And if global air traffic stops, like how do you deliver packages? And so we developed a set of scenarios about like, what would that look like? How would it come about? Where might it start? And what would it mean for this company? And then of course, there's a whole set of strategic questions that come after that, which is like, okay, if that were to happen, what would you do? How would you plan for it? And um, the pandemic thankfully did not happen yet. Uh, <laughs> but what did happen is the is you know the eruption of an Icelandic volcano that uh, Jonathan is could pronounce for us, but that I'm not. <laughs> Thank you very much. And <laughs> and so this company was actually so it, it was a totally different it was different crisis, mm -hmm. but the company was prepared because they had mm -hmm. they had already thought through what happens if you have you know global air traffic shut down because of some event, and so they were able to continue to operate even though there was you know this eruption of an Icelandic volcano which shut down if I remember correctly you know air traffic especially through Western Europe, and it's an example of like look again you can't predict the future you don't know whether it's going to be a volcano or a pandemic, but if you start to prepare for different possibilities that makes you resilient and you can adapt one set of you know mm -hmm. strategic choices to a different set of circumstances yeah it's you know it's making me think like the emergency services community and and i have i'm going to dig into this for a future episode so i haven't quite gotten there yet but like if you think about it somebody who drives an ambulance right like they're able to respond to a heart attack or a gunshot or whatever and they're trained in like a whole series of different emergency precautions the interesting thing about this story is You've got a global organization that's dealing with global logistics that's worried about one particular thing that they think could go really bad. And there's a surprise thing, which is analogous to it because it hits it hits the same problem, even though it's completely different. So I wonder if there's like a, I wonder if there's a formula whereby you say um, you could prepare for A, B, and C, but there's actually a whole bunch of other things that are quite similar that could happen where you're going into it as a, as a scenario planner, you know that there there could be these kinds of benefits. Sure. I mean, you know, one of the interesting that things that happens with scenario planning too is, and, and we've done this in this conversation, like the natural tendency is to go to the downside risks. Like uh -huh. what, what could happen that's really bad that we need to prepare for? Yeah. But it turns out that actually the companies that have the most difficulty, it's often not preparing for the downside risk, it's for the upside reward. It's when something happens that, you know, like all of a sudden there's like, like you know, incredible growth or, you know, something goes viral or mm -hmm. you have, you know, all of a sudden everyone wants your product or your service and you are not at all prepared for that kind of growth. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in some ways, maybe the interesting story, especially since we're here in Silicon Valley, is thinking about scenarios for how do you grow 100% year over year in order to, um, you know, to deal with the demand for your particular product, your particular service. It's a really hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's this great story. Masters of Scale is one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. And he keeps advertising that. I keep advertising it. They can listen to that if they want. This is different. So do both. But Reed Hoffman, Reed Hoffman talks about in the early days, I think it was PayPal, um, they didn't have a customer. No, they had a customer number, but then uh, they took it off the website. And then someone found their phone numbers, like individual phone numbers for the corporate headquarters. And PayPal's demand was so high that all of the phones in the office were constantly ringing. They never stopped <laughs> ringing. And he was like, what do we do? There's no way we can do this. Like it's interrupting business. And they made the decision to just not answer the phones. They just like let them burn for like a long time. And so the narrative he talks about is like, letting it all burn down in order to build what you have to prioritize. So you focus on on the stuff that you have to do, which in their case is like getting products, like making sure money transfers worked, could yeah. be somebody else's focus on, on getting products. But like, that's that's hard. I mean, that strikes me as like a much harder set of decisions than like, um, than actually doing a scenario. <laughs> that's probably true. I mean, I, I think if you boil down scenario planning to its essence, what it fundamentally is, is about just, um, laying the groundwork for reperceiving the world in which you operate and you live. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there are a lot of different ways to do that. Let's let's tie this even back to the beginning of our conversation. I think one of the reasons why all three of us really like the outdoors is it helps us reperceive and process and think about the things that we care about um, and allows us to do it in a way which is not distracted um, and kind of gives us, you know, fresh perspective on things. Yeah. And what scenarios are doing is rather than just, you know, sort of clearing the deck as it were and saying like, well, you just need a fresh perspective on something. You're actually constructing new perspectives that allow you to see the world in a way that you might not have before. Now, DJ, yeah. I imagine like given some of the experiences you've had, like that must resonate with you, this idea that you just see 
you know, like go go into a combat, for example, and you you have one set of expectations about what that's going to be like, who you're going to meet, what their attitudes are going to be. And then over time, you learn maybe something entirely different and and trying to figure out like how to process that and what it means and then how to act on the basis of that new set of perceptions. Yeah. And what I'm thinking about in, in listening to you talk is we when we're making decisions within the environment in which those decisions are going to play out, right? They're not in a bubble or a vacuum, right? And so we're constantly making decisions based off of reaction to a set of impulses. And when we're talking about threats, right, we're not the ones that are responsible most of the time for those, we're on the receiving end of those impulses. And so the beautiful thing about nature is you get to go to nature and it becomes very quiet. Right. And we've gotten rid of the noise and the interference mm -hmm. that technology invades in our life in these open contract offices and these tech companies, right, where you're constantly being bombarded by these distractions. And so what we run the risk of, whether it's a positive vulnerability or instability of all of a sudden you have an influx of growth or revenue or the negative impulse where you're responding to a threat, you're not making decisions when you're emotionally charged, right? And that, and that as we all know, it runs many dangers. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the, the beautiful things is I learned more and, and Amy Webb, uh, I've gotten to know and work with over the years and she's just also a, a futurist now thinking about the AI world, right? Is, is by having by forcing the discipline of looking out through several, three, four different scenario plays, when one of those plays out, because the likelihood is one of them will play out, it's not the first time that you're thinking about it. So you can actually address the gameplay in a more relaxed, controlled environment, and you'll have a more likely outcome of how you're going to respond to mm -hmm. it. Right? If you if you if you wake up all of a sudden you win the 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 lotto, <laughs> right? And you've never thought about that before. Mm -hmm. You will waste a vast majority of that money in the and, coming years. And, <laughs> most, and most of them do. Like most, most of them, of them end do. up, you know, like yeah. you know, having no money. Just remember me, DJ, when you win the lottery. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think there's a thought that you that you hinted at in there, and, and often often in the show we talk about both the self and the organization, two different, you know, related but but similar. Um, we do make decisions from an emotionally charged standpoint and, it, and it, it's never a good idea, right? Like you have to be in charge of your emotions. In the book, um, The 48 Laws of Power, which I'm sort of a third of the way through for the last year of my life, um, ADD, the, fir the, first, the first rule is like master your emotions. And I wonder, DJ, um, like have you seen people, have you seen people adapt in, in your work where like folks over, who you've known over time who haven't been in charge and then learned and then adapted and, and then, or even for yourself. Uh, so that's a good question. I, so, I, so let me go back to combat. We, t we talked about that a little bit. There's this, there's this amazing study that was done in the eighties in, in, in Australia about PTSD and, and studying those that went into combat. And what they discovered was the more times you're in a combat scenario, the less likely over time, it's no longer a traumatic event. It's something that you can visualize. It's something that you can prepare for. Mm -hmm. And even though you're in the moment and everything about the moment is by definition traumatic, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't new to you, right? And so you could react to it and then you could come back, take this new information that you learned about how you performed as an individual and as a collective and then improve mm -hmm. and then go back. And, and they took, and they didn't study uh, special operators, they just conventional military. Um, and, and as I sit here at, I don't know how many, 80 some, 85, I think 84 surgeries, you know, people are like, oh my God, that's horrible. How is that? Well, I mean, the, I mean, the first 20, I was in a coma, so that didn't really count, right? And then over time, you're like, now it's just, you know, the whole process, mm -hmm. right? And so I know exactly how my body's gonna recover. I know exactly the, the stresses that are gonna arise out of that, the irritabilityness, the anger, all of that, right? And so now it's just a problem solving mm -hmm. exercise, right? So the act itself, which by definition is horrific, 
isn't really horrific anymore. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's something that is controlled. And so that's what I look. You, you've created the environment in which you can reduce the anxiety and the stress mm-hmm. so that you can manage it in a more predictable, stable manner. Yeah, I mean, it's a great, in some ways, like psychological lens on, I think, what scenario planning is able to do for organizations, which is to make change less traumatic because you can sort of visualize what's possible. You prepared for it in some fashion. And even if you haven't actually experienced that particular form of change, or you wouldn't plan specifically for that form of change. You plan for enough of it and you sort of thought through enough of it that you're able to navigate in ways that would be better than other organizations that had not given it any thought at all because Mm -hmm. they were too busy just focusing on operations. Which, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I think a challenge, especially in, in the world of technology, like it moves very, very quickly. Folks don't actually like to spend time kind of reflecting on stuff because that's taking you away from the market and it's taking you away from new technology development. Mm-hmm. But you know, like if you don't if you don't prepare, you get surprised by all kinds of things. And you know, I think in the world of scenario planning, like one, and you know, like we can maybe this is an interesting thing to explore. Like one um, important set of changes that is always pretty dynamic is like the legal and regulatory environment. Yeah, and. Now we even have like tech leaders uh, like Mark Zuckerberg calling for the regulation of mm-hmm. certain kinds of data. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if that actually happens, that's going to be incredibly disruptive for a whole set of organizations. And, you know, some of them may be planning for it. And obviously, some are even trying to shape it, mm-hmm. um, but some are going to get caught flat footed. And that's mm-hmm. not the kind of thing you want to do if you want to win. Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah, if you want to yeah. win, you go on the offensive. You go right, on, yeah. and that's the whole we talked about. Right? That's my whole thing, right? The whole foundation of resilience is moving from a subordinate position in life, a defensive posture, to one in which you're proactive, in charge. You're the one, you know, setting the condition. I think there are also ways in which you can kind of ease your way as an organization or as a set of leaders of an organization, kind of ease your way into doing this kind of work without, you know, signing up for like a year long scenario planning process which is what you know for example like shell does i think even like herman miller herman miller has its own internal scenario planning unit they spend the furniture company. the furniture company and they spend and what's interesting about them is they spend you know they they have a team that just spends time thinking about what is going to be the future of work mm-hmm. because the because if we understand what the future of work is going to be like we can understand what kind of furniture people are going to need. Or uh, in another example, which is sort of amusing, is at one point we were hired by a cosmetics company that wanted to think about the future of love, mm. because the future of love has an impact on the kind of cosmetics that um, that that people may buy. So you can ease yourself into. It. I mean, you can obviously bring you know you can hire people and bring them into your organization to do kind of like quick hit types of scenario work. You can do you can actually start to bring people into your organization, hire people who have the capacity for that kind of strategic and futures thinking. You can develop an, organi- an organizational mm-hmm. capacity for actually developing internal scenarios. I think what often happens in some organizations is like the the strategists end up doing kind of corporate strategy, like they end up focusing on like due diligence for M&A type of stuff or thinking about like, how do we convince senior executives that this next product is the right product for us to bring to market? It ends up being kind of very narrowly focused, tactical. Mm -hmm. So there is a way, again, to circle back to the beginning of our conversation, which like, look, you know, if you if you don't give a crap about nature, like you're not going to go backpacking or hiking, like if, if it doesn't do anything for you, you're not going to spend time you know, so how do you develop an, appreciate for, uh, an appreciation for a way of thinking or a kind of experience that is meaningful and important for the things that you do in your life um, over time? Like, how do you how do you develop and and those yeah. muscles? And I think that's part of what we're talking about. And I think what's interesting is that a lot of this, you know, is still kind of rooted, especially in the Bay Area, where you have a long history of let's just call it experimentation yeah. um, <laughs> with, with different mindsets because you know because there are lots of ways to You're talking the about world. surfboards here. That's exactly right. what yeah, I'm talking about, talking about, Jonathan. Surfboards, yeah, yeah, and skateboards, skateboarding. Yes. <laughs> and DJ also brought up the, the the critically important point that we have agency. Like we can also not entirely, but we can shape our futures. And so mm-hmm. if we don't have a sense of what the future could be and we don't have a plan for shaping the future that we want, then we are gonna feel to some extent powerless. Like that we're sort of a ship at sea and you know, the waves are kind of taking us 
moving us about and taking us in any direction that the waves want to take us. And I think that that, you know, especially now, um, the importance of having a sense of purpose and a sense of direction and to, and to actually feel like you have agency, whether it's, you know, creating organizations or creating or getting into business and creating a new service or a new technology mm -hmm. or whether it's just going to a, a voting booth and, and voting. But if you don't have a sense of that, you're going to be pretty frustrated. So I've been reading, that's a great point. And I've, I've just started reading this book called You Are Not Your Brain. Um, the subtitle is, has three sub clauses in it, so I won't I won't drop the ball. But it's I am it's so bit. glad I am not your brain. <laughs> yeah, well, he makes <laughs> a, the young man makes a good point. Likewise, brother, we both wish we, I wish I could just take a little more Jesse's brain. No, you're always yours. I can do without. <laughs> but so the, the this is the theory of neuroplasticity and brain patterns, and it's like to your question about agency, right? Like, and and this is for people concerned with the health and well being of society or of families in general. You're constantly asking yourself, like, how do we get there? And like. You know, I want everyone to have agency. And Gandhi used to talk about, you know, inspiring agency amongst the Indian people. For folks who are caught in a in a brain pattern, though, it's like you have you have brain messages um, that your brain sends you, and if you end up getting involved in certain kinds of routines where your brain sends you regular routines, then you actually wire your brain for one practice, mm -hmm. and you begin to think that's who you are. Right. And the argument that this book makes that I think is particularly beautiful is like that's actually not who you are. Who you are is is your true intentions. It's your hopes for your life. It's like the people you care and you love, who you care about and love. So it's actually, you can start to rewire your brain through a combination of like cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness. It's sort of that further. Mm -hmm. and it actually physiologically rewires your brain. Right. So for people out there who are listening to this conversation, who may be saying to themselves, gosh, I don't feel like I have agency or I'm, my life has been like this to date and I can't spring myself out of it. Or my company is like this and I have these demands and I don't have the time to make it actually there's a physiological part of your brain where you may have patterns going on in your head that you're not even aware of. Right. And and that is a red teaming or a scenario. So like you do a little, run a little scenario exercise on yourself. Like what are your what what's your version of the official future that you're telling yourself? Absolutely. Well, and I, the point that you're making I think is, you know, is also critical recognizing that like what you're talking about is a practice. Like you don't just do you don't just like yeah. decide one morning you're going to rewire your brain. By dinner, you've successfully rewired your brain, and then you just go off living a better or a different life than the one you you did previously, right? Like it is a practice that you have to work at over time, and it's really hard as an individual. It's even harder as an organization, which has you know its own culture, which is lots mm -hmm. of individuals, all of which are bringing different sets of you know emotions and thoughts and ideas and cognitions to. The table and so you know one of the i think one of the things that like senior leaders get frustrated with is like okay well we did this scenario planning exercise why isn't anything different like it, again <laughs> it's it's a practice right you have mm -hmm. to kind of build the muscles you have to build the institutional capability you have to have the right people mm -hmm. all of that is doable but if you if you think about it as like a just one and done kind of thing it's not going to happen exactly yeah um let's wrap up with final thoughts this has been great dj anything over to you no, I was just thinking about this was that a silly quote. We are what we repetitively do, therefore excellence is not an act, but a habit. Oh, I love it. Right. That gets to the people say habit. Socrates said it, but yeah. then they say someone else said it. But uh <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about if you want to repetitively do it and then pause. Go put yourself in a different environment. One of the themes is we talk about nature is an easy, cheap way to do it. For three days, <laughs> yeah. right, or even for three minutes a day, just to break that that uh, complacency, mm -hmm. right, in, the, in, in our brain mm -hmm. complacency, and then and then come back and keep doing the thing that you're trying to achieve for excellence, and you're, you're bringing with it this this break, yeah, right. Um, so it's, it's 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 interesting, and so how does this? I'm looking at you know in the future of how we look at leadership and how we look at teams. Mm. You know, we're we're almost diving into another aspect of what makes great leaders. Yep. What makes great teams? Yep. Good. I think that's great. I mean, I would just like um, here's kind of a little mini challenge for for us and for our listeners. Um, you know, I think one of the, for me, one of the most fun things about doing scenario planning is just asking good questions, like, and, and figuring out how to frame a question in a way in which it's becomes, it becomes not just a question, but a provocative question, an interesting question. And one way to, oh, to do that as a simple practice is just, you know, start with a question like, what if, like, what if dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And you can do that for, you know, uh, yourself as an individual, you do it for your family, you can do it, you know, for your organization. And I think that that, that becomes a, you know, what if um, technology actually becomes, um, you know, something that people don't want? What if uh, artificial intelligence becomes a generalized artificial intelligence and has the capacity to think for itself? Um, what if um, the most um, sophisticated technology development actually happens outside the United States for the next 50 years as opposed to inside the United States? Like, and just kind of starting to think through those questions, whatever is relevant to you as an individual or you as an organization or a business is kind of taking the first step toward thinking about the future in a systematic way. That's great. Um, thank you, Jesse, for coming down today and joining us here on Beyond the Breach. My pleasure. DJ, thank thanks you for having for, me. Yeah, it's been been great to have you, and um, you come back anytime. Um, DJ, thanks for coming up. It's great to have you yet again, young man. Uh, so here's I'm, I was trying to come up with an inspirational quote to leave you with. The future, I think I'm the, older than you. Yeah. No, he, he's not. He just looks old, DJ. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm two days. You know, you're right. You're I think he might 12. be dying his hair, actually. No, I'm 17. Oh, my God. He's so full of it. What's your birthday? October 17th. I'm older. October 14th. By three days. Yeah. I, yeah the three-day effect. The three-day effect. What? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No wonder this explains everything. Um, yes, it does. <laughs> the future is unwritten, folks. That that much we know is true. And uh, uh, sometimes you may think that you can't write it or your organization can't write it, or it's not being written the way you want. Uh, the last thought is great. The first thought is false. You can definitely write it. And if it's not being written the way you want, you have the agency, and you can rewire your brain if you don't think you have the agency to develop it. Um, and uh, you can do it. You can do it. If you don't follow The Rock, by the way, on Instagram, and you're, mm. ever, you're ever having any element of self-doubt, go and do that. That guy will inspire you if we're not doing it enough here on Beyond the Breach. So thank you for coming on board. Uh, thank you, Brian Thayer, our senior media manager and, and sound engineer for being here and helping us get set up. Thank you to Courtney Blaskauer for the art for the episode, keeping me on track and uh, for all the good content she creates. And thank you to Brandon Williams, our resident historian, uh, research associate and PhD at UC Berkeley. And we'll talk to you next time. 